check out his book, Game the Plan. He published it back in 2014 in the heat of this as he was going public and then taken private by Vista here recently, now looking to scale past their 1,600 customers, driving ASPs up higher with additional acquisitions using the war chest that is the Vista $14 billion machine behind him. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Chris Cabrera. He founded Exactly back in 2005 and has since led the team from startup to IPO, now back to private equity-owned company at Vista. Previously, Cabrera was SVP of operations for a company called Calidus, acquiring 100-plus customers and leading a successful IPO. He holds a BS and an MA from USC and Santa Clara University. Chris, you ready to take us to the top? I'm ready. All right. So I'm going to actually just like go right in. My audience is pretty sophisticated SaaS. One big debate I've had with many of the CEOs that have come on my show doing between call it 60 and 120 million bucks in ARR that have really strong expansion revenue muscles is do you incentivize the customer success team like you incentivize the sales team with the base plus commission on expansion revenue they drive? Because you service this market exactly and you see all kinds of incentive structures, what are you seeing right now? Are these companies incentivizing with the commission based structures on customer service teams? Well, they're not all doing that. And, and, and you know, it kind of depends on what you're defining as customer service. If we're talking about the renewals teams, the, the, we call them CAMs, customer account managers that are responsible to re-up the customers, they are absolutely getting paid commissions very much like a sales rep, base plus commission. We're seeing that pretty across the board. If you're talking about customer service people that are more just servicing the customers ongoing, they're not responsible for the renewals. We typically will see bonuses in that area, but it's, you won't see, typically, you won't see straight line commissions, you know, with multipliers and kickers and president's club eligibility. So a lot of the things that are more standard in the sales uh, roles. Let me take a stab at being more specific. These would be for people that are not account executives, but when you look at your pricing axes that these SaaS companies are pricing against, there's always a utility-based upsell. For Twilio, it's number of API calls. For HubSpot, it's number of contacts. You have your own upsells. So the people inside of those teams that drive the usage metric up, do you see those people being comped like a salesperson with commissions? Not always. We don't always see that. You know, I think some of the better companies are recognizing that they should do that. And they're recognizing that comp can drive dramatic behaviors and whatever it is you're trying to drive, whether it's getting the customer to engage more or be online more, add more contacts or whatever the case might be. And so we are seeing progressive companies doing that. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're hamstrung on Excel-based systems. So when you're in these Excel-based paradigms, it's very, very difficult to create complex you know, compensation routines to provide the dangling carrot, which is the visibility through your cell phone or whatever. And so I think that's one of the reasons that companies just avoid it. What we find is in our customer base, because they have a tool that allows them to do that elegantly, easily, and with great visibility, we find them paying all kinds of people, the people that you're talking about, as well as almost 100% of the population, including receptionists at the front desk. I mean, literally anybody who is seeing a customer or interfacing with a customer in any way, shape, or form, they're using our systems to, to motivate behaviors to, to have that experience be better. Very cool. And those of you that are not familiar with, obviously, Chris's platform, that is exactly what they help do, which is why I led with some of those questions. Chris, let's take a step back here for a second. Yeah. So you've gone from kind of nothing, I believe 2005 was founding year, to an IPO, to then, you know, teaming up with Ryan and Robert and the great team at Vista to then go private again. Let me just get some context. Where was your head in 2005? Were you kind of broke on the street, had to make this thing work? Why'd you launch the thing in the first place? Well, it's a, quite a long story. I'll, I'll try to make it very quick. And you can read about it on my book called Game the Plan on Amazon. But I was working at a competitive company selling on-premise software, the big license, the big hardware, the big install. And uh, Salesforce.com sort of pushed me out of the nest and said, 
we're not going to buy this from you because it's the wrong religion. It needs to be SaaS. It needs to be the cloud. The cloud is the future. Of course, in 2005, there weren't that many cloud companies. And so I tried like heck to get my old company to embrace the cloud unsuccessfully. We might have had some bad words that ended in me getting fired. And so I was you know, going into Christmas in 2004 without a job, but with Salesforce saying, you know, if you build this, we will come. And I had eight years of experience in this compensation, you know, realm, you know, it was kind of a no brainer to go start this company. And so that's what I did. And Salesforce, true to form, became my very first customer today, our longest standing user. I love that. And now, obviously, you raised capital for the company pre-IPO. So up to the IPO, not including funds raised on IPO date, how was the company capitalized total amount in? Uh, it was like $96 million. Okay. And out of curiosity, now obviously, when was IPO date? It was 2015. Okay. So economics is a little different back then, but generally speaking, what was your ARR to funding ratio? Was it close to one-to-one or did you have more revenue than funding? It was just it was very close to one-to-one, a little, a little less. Okay. So I'd consider that in today's day and age actually high leverage with the outstanding exception being Eric, where there's like a two-to-one ratio, which is an incredible story at Zoom. So you had obviously leverage there. First off, was Salesforce just a customer? Or did, did they also invest out of the fund? They were an investor too. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So your first hundred customers you got, did you rely on the Salesforce app ecosystem or walk me through how you landed those folks? You know, we were partners with Salesforce right out of the gate. So we, we worked very closely with them, but you know, we also were partners with Oracle and everybody else. And so we, we, you know, we were really just focusing on at that time, companies that had three or four or 500 salespeople in their Salesforce. That was sort of our sweet spot in the early days. And you know, what we found in that sweet spot was companies that were definitely using manual-based, Excel-based systems. They had tons of pain, lots of error rates, and no web-based visibility or, or cell phone-based visibility. And so it was a little bit like you know, shooting ducks in the pond in those early days because you know, the ROIs were, were phenomenal and fantastic. So that's kind of how we started with the first 100 companies were all, I'd say, mostly high-tech companies that were embracing SaaS. We were generally either the first or second SaaS app they were buying back in those days. One of my favorite things about building this podcast to well over 10 million downloads and being just super connected in the SaaS space is I get the opportunity to connect and meet you guys in person at conferences. And there's one you can't miss on September 10th and 11th in San Francisco, SaaS Stock West Coast. I'll be speaking, giving a keynote I've never given before. We'll get into data and details like you've never seen, plus 10 predictions I have about the SaaS space, including the next IPOs, the next mammoth rounds, the next big buyouts. You won't want to miss it. Additionally, there'll be other speakers like Dan Martell, who built and sold his company. CMO of SurveyMonkey, Lila will be there. Santi from Emergence Capital will be there. There'll be over 400 people, the biggest and brightest minds in B2B SaaS. Investors, entrepreneurs, and founders. Be sure you get a ticket today before prices increase. Go to sasstock.com forward slash West Coast. That's SaaS, S-A-A-S, dot com forward slash West Coast. Chris, what kind of contract, those team sizes, the target you just articulated, what was kind of average first year ACV back in that day? Are we talking about $100,000 kind of plans or north or south? Yeah, probably about $100,000. And uh, where have you matured to today? Are you kind of more upstream or downstream from there? Well, interestingly, we sort of done both, but just, I mean, it's only been less than a year since I talked to you last. In that time frame, we have done another acquisition. So we've done three acquisitions in the last 15 months, which is allowing us to sell a lot more products, which is getting our ASPs going much higher. We just closed the largest initial deal we've ever done in 14-year history just last month. So we're starting to see much, Which much company better. was that? 
Uh, we can't say I didn't give me permission to talk about it, but it's a very large. Oh, it's not public yet. No, not the name of the company, no. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I harassed the hell out of Andre, just came on from Ping. We had Numerator on, we had Bill on at Media. I go, you guys are all getting calls after the $14 billion fund closes. You know, Reggie going, Vista going, guys, listen, we got to deploy the capital. Find some places to deploy it responsibly and let's rock and roll. Well, that's what's been so much fun about being part of the Vista family. Uh, you know, and it was part of the, the reason we took the company private was, you know, they sort of said, we believe in your vision. We want you to go from an ICM company just handling sales comp to an SPM company, which is sales comp and all the surrounding areas like territory management and sales planning. And so go find those companies that can build up the story that you've been wanting to tell Chris and, and we'll support you. And, and it's, it's been an incredibly fun ride, but the benefit is exactly what you were saying. We're seeing these much larger ASPs. We're going back and able to sell. We have 1600 customers now all over the globe we're able to go back to them and upsell, cross-sell all these different products now that we have. Whereas before, we were kind of fairly much a one-trick pony. We had comp, and that was that was sort of it. So we've expanded our our TAM pretty dramatically. Chris, we're, we're running out of time here, so I want to get this number, and it seems to have been a focus. Obviously, doing additional acquisitions allows you to drive ASP up. It allows you to drive expansion up. Obviously, does amazing things to you in economics across the board if your pro formas pan out. When you look at the historical cohort that you signed up a year ago on kind of first-year ACVs that are renewing kind of in the past one or two months, what are you typically expanding those accounts to year one over year two? It's well north of 100%. You know, I don't know the exact number because it does bounce around depending on whether it's SMB or mid-market or enterprise. But we're upselling and cross-selling quite a lot. In fact, something like high double-digit teens uh, percentage of our new bookings is coming from these new products that we've acquired in the last 15 months. So Cross-selling them into the current base? That's right. Yeah. So net revenue retention, are you guys north of 140 at this point across the entire base? Probably not that high, no. Okay. You think you can get there though if you keep doing the acquisitions, you keep cross-selling? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Very good. Last question here. Right when Vista does the deal, I'm assuming you were looking at a lot of other players as well. Vista saw something that other people didn't pay. So maybe they could pay the most for the deal, which is why you did it. Plus they're great partners. What's the first change or maybe the first two changes you made post Vista acquisition that only Vista would kind of, would have been able to kind of help you see and help you execute? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we did, we did so many good things with the company. I think one of the things we did was we had offices all over the place. We had people all over the place. And we sort of said, let's create a center of excellence in Denver, where we already had a small footprint. We had about 75 people in Denver. Just two years later now, we have 350 people in Denver on its way shortly to 500. And so we've really consolidated a lot of our hiring into that single area. And I think that has been a very positive thing for the culture of the company. A lot of you know, just getting everybody under the same roof working rather than just spread out all over the place. We still have a lot of offices elsewhere, but that um, center of excellence approach was a Vista initiated program, which I think has been great. Anything counterintuitive related to unit metrics? For example, Andre told me that he's actually pushing his dollar-based CAC up to drive competitors out of the channel. Then when they leave, he can drop the CAC lower. Most people would say, keep your CAC as low as you can. Are you doing any counterintuitive things? I think one of the counterintuitive things was something we call rule of X, which is this idea of we used to sign, you know, three-year deals, and during the three-year deals, there was no increases uh, annually. You know, one of the things we we decided to do was go with go for five or seven-year deals and have annual increases every single year in the contract. And it certainly seemed counterintuitive. We thought we would get tremendous pushback, but it's proven out to be a great thing for us as in our business and our customers like it because they're locking in, they like the, the longer-term contract, they're happy with the ability to buy all these additional products. So. You know, that's something I wouldn't have seen or foreseen a couple of years ago. 
The last question, then we're going to wrap up here. Who, who gets to a billion dollars in ARR first, you or Reggie? Uh, Reggie's a little bigger than me, but uh, I'm going to give him a run for it. Uh, you know, but, uh, I love Reggie. He's, he's a wonderful guy. Guys, there you have it. Chris Exactly Corp. Check out his book, Game the Plan. He published it back in 2014 in the heat of this as he was going public and then taken private by Vista here recently. Now looking to scale past their 1,600 customers, driving ASPs up higher with additional acquisitions using the war chest. That is the Vista $14 billion machine behind him. Chris, thank you for taking us to the top. Thank you very much, Nathan. Good talking to you.